As we open up God's Word this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 8, all nine verses, Psalm of David. As you know, if you've been attending Coleridge for the last few months, we've been working our way through the Bible in a series entitled God's Story, Our Story, and we've been making the case every week that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not merely a collection of random stories and facts and figures but actually it tells one story from beginning to end. And unless we understand that one grand story of the Bible, we'll never truly understand what God is trying to teach us. And also, if we don't understand the story of the Bible, we'll never understand our story, how it shapes us and informs what we call a biblical worldview. Last two weeks ago, we got to the end of Malachi, and at the end of Malachi, we know that there are 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of waiting, 400 years of waiting for all of the promises of the Old Testament to become fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what did they do for 400 years, the people of God? They had to go back. They had to remember the story. They had to remember the story that was told between Genesis and Malachi. And so before we dive into the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew, I want to take the next four weeks to remember the story because for some of you, you might be lost. The garden and the exodus, the tabernacle and the temple. David said what? At what year? There was prophets, minor and major prophets. Solomon said what in which book, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. So I want to make it simple. If somebody was to ask you, what is the Bible all about? You can simply say that the Bible is divided into four parts. It's four parts. And I had our communications team come up with this graphic. It begins with creation, and then it goes to the fall, redemption, and then consummation. It's the four parts of the Bible story. And if you understand those four parts, you'll understand this beautiful storyline that begins in Genesis in the garden and ends in Revelation in the garden city. It starts at creation in God creating the heavens and the earth. We decide to rebel and it brings about the fall and sin and death enter into the world in Genesis chapter three. But thank God that the story doesn't end there. The third part of the story of the Bible continues with Jesus coming to fulfill the promise of redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the consummation, the consummation, the completion of what God started in the garden. We read in Revelation that what was started in the garden is finished in the new heavens and the new earth. And so four parts should be easy to remember, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And for the next four weeks, we're going to take a different part of this story and read about it in the story of God's Word. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of creation as it's rehearsed for us in Psalm chapter 8. This is a Psalm of David writing about the story of creation. So Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, this is the story of creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and the grass withers and the flower fades. For the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. What do you call a people who forget where they came from? What do you call a people who don't understand who they are? What do you call a people who don't understand where they're going? You would call them lost. Well, for the people of God, one of the reasons it was important to rehearse this story of creation, the story of creation as it's found in Genesis 1 and 2, the reason they had to rehearse this story, and thanks be to God for David rehearsing this story for us in Psalm 8, it was because when we are in the wilderness, or in maybe those moments in life where it seems like God is silent, that we need to remember who we are and who we belong to. We need to remember that there is a God and that we need to remember that we belong to him. The more I read and study the scriptures, I am convinced that it answers the big questions of life. And what I want to do this morning briefly, as we look at the story of creation, as it's retold to us in Psalm 8, is I want us to see how creation answers three foundational questions for all of life. Number one, where did the world come from? Number two, what is a human being? And number three, what is the ultimate purpose in life? Creation answers the foundational questions in life. Where did this world come from? What is a human being? And what is the ultimate purpose in life? Number one, where did this world come from? When we read verses one and three of Psalm eight, David is exalting God And he's saying, God, your name, your reputation, which is the definition of name in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, your reputation is one of majesty throughout the earth. Why? Verse 3, because when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have put in and set in place. You see, David is going out And he's saying, God, you have a name and a reputation that is majestic throughout the earth. And I recognize and praise you for the God who has put everything into being, that has put everything into place. David wants the people of God to rehearse continually that God is God and we are not. You see, the doctrine of creation reminds us where all of this came from. Foundationally, we need to be reminded every single day that the Lord, our God, is sovereign and we are not. You see, all throughout life, humanity has been asking this question, is God king or is man king? And we need the doctrine of creation to remind us that there is one king and you are not him. Nothing caused God. God caused everything. And the doctrine of creation continually reminds us that God is not dependent on anyone or anything. 
that God is sovereign, that he is the king and we are not. The implications are staggering. It reminds us that if God is king and that this universe revolves around him, it reminds us that there is an absolute being and therefore there is absolute truth. That we don't have to go through life wondering if morality is relative, if truth is just a simply a choice in the eye of the beholder, that we realize that if there is an absolute being, then there is absolute truth. If there is an absolute being, then his truth and his morality that he gives to his people is objective. We've been saying for the last few weeks that God has spoken through his word and therefore it is final. It also means that all of life is dependent upon him, that he, revol- that he is the one in which all life is found and all life is granted. Past, past parents, we would be committing parental malpractice if we were not ingraining this truth in our children, reminding them that this world does not revolve around them but that this world and all of life revolves around God, that we would be saving our children a tremendous amount of heartache and confusion in life if we teach this principle to our children that God is God and we are not. Listen, until we answer the foundational question, where did this world come from? We will forever be lost in this life. We need to be reminded every day who made us, who made everything, who runs everything, who sustains everything. Where did this world come from? From the one who is majestic, the sovereign king over all the earth. But secondly, it not only creation, not only answers the foundational question, where did we come from? But it also answers the question, what is a human being? In verse four and five, David asks the very relevant question, in light of seeing that you have made all things, in light of recognizing that you are sovereign God, he asks the question, what in the world is man? That you are mindful of him. The son of man could be translated literally the son of Adam. All human beings that you care for them. And then he says this, verse five, yet you have made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You see, one of the questions that I hear all the time is people wrestling with the question, who am I? What have I become? It's a question of identity. And we need the doctrine of creation to be reminded that our identity is not found in what we do or what we fail to do. That our identity is not defined by this world or by our culture. That our identity is grounded in the beautiful truth that we are created in the image of God. Verse five of Psalm eight takes us back to Genesis one, verse 26, where the Godhead decides that out of all of the creatures, that it would be humanity that would be the crown jewel, that I will put my image upon them, that they will be created in the very image of God. And so when David reminds us in verse five that humanity is crowned with glory and honor, they are words reserved for the king. That is royal language, only reserved for the sovereign. And David is saying, yes, the sovereign God who created all of this, are you ready for your mind to be blown? He has put his mark upon you. Language used for the king. That is where our identity is found. 
that we can wake up every day understanding the truth that we are not an accident. We are simply not a product of nature, a cosmic accident, but that we are created in the very image of God. Why is this foundational? Because parents, you will one day, and grandparents, send your children off to college, and they will enter into a philosophy classroom, and the philosophy teacher will tell them, your greatest struggle in life is self-esteem. You need to build yourself up. And then they will walk into a biology classroom, and a teacher will tell them that you are absolutely nothing, just a random accident. How do you deal with that? One teacher saying you need to build yourself up with self-esteem, and another professor telling them that they are absolutely nothing. No, the truth for our children and our grandchildren and the next generation is reminding them every day, who are you? You are a child that has been created in the very image of God. This is where our inherent dignity and self-worth is found. And that is why the church of Jesus Christ has stood for the sanctity of human life. Because if for 2,000 years we have understood that it is the doctrine of the image of God that brings value and dignity, inherent dignity and worth to all human beings. This is the truth. Not defined by our culture, not defined by the world, but defined by the reality of the image of God. I talk to men all the time. And if there is one thing men are not immune from, whether they're 20 or whether they're 80, is struggling with their identity. I talk to men all the time, wrestling with their career, wrestling with their marriage, wrestling with their life, wrestling with their 401k, wrestling with their future. And they buy the lie, without exception, constantly tempted that my identity is found in what I do. And we need to be reminded every day that our identity, particularly as men, our identity is not found in what we do. Our identity is found in who we are and the beauty and the glory of the truth of Jesus Christ. I see so many people, young and old, male and female, wrestling with this beautiful truth that we are created in the image of God. What is a human being? David says, human beings made a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor. So the doctrine of creation answers the foundational question, where did this world come from? What is a human being? But lastly, it answers the foundational question, what is the ultimate purpose in life? It's a good question, because each one of us wakes up every day and asks the question just like Solomon does, is everything meaningless? I mean, it seems like the sun rises and the sun sets. It seems like there is nothing new under the sun. But this is what David says in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, you have been given dominion over the works of your hands, and you, you have put all things under his feet. Once again, David is taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. And just as David was taking us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verses 6, 7, and 8 take us back to the cultural mandate. In Genesis chapter 1 and 28, we are told to be fruitful and multiply, sub subdue, and have dominion over all the earth. This is the calling of the people of God to take his royal reputation, the royal reputation of the sovereign God, to the utter ends of the earth. And so we as people 
struggling and wrestling not only with identity, but also wrestling with purpose and calling, can rest assured that God has given us a royal calling to take his sacred name to all the earth, to act as co-regents, co-laboring with God the King, to make his name famous over all the earth. Here is the calling of the people of God according to David. Wherever you go, make the sovereign God known. Whatever you do, advance his majestic name. This is why you are here. This is why God has kept you here, to advance his kingdom and spread the glory of God. It is a royal calling for his people. Not only I born and created as image bearers of God, but called to represent him wherever you go. This is what it means. This is what it means to be alive. This is what it means to be fully human. And without the doctrine of the creation, we will never understand, we will always forget where this world came from and who we are and what our purpose uh, is in life. But here's the promise, the problem this morning. Many of you don't feel this way. If we're all honest, many of you don't feel fully alive. In fact, you wake up every day and you struggle to even get out of bed. Some of you wake up every day and you struggle with purpose. You struggle with identity. Why is that? Because David says you have it right here. If you understand the story of creation, you have everything you need to live and to exist. But here's the foundational problem. After creation, we blew it. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, we said it's not enough. And we chose to live life independent from God. And with that came sin and the darkness and the brokenness came into our lives and came into our world. You see, it's in Genesis chapter 3 that as image bearers, that image was broken. That image was darkened. That it no longer desired to reflect the glory of God, but it desired to reflect the glory of man. But what would God do for broken image bearers like you and me, men and women who don't feel fully alive? Well, the clue's in verse 4. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 8. It says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? That word care in the Hebrew literally means to visit. To care means to visit. How did God show that he cared through visiting? Centuries later, God would show us that he cared by visiting us in the flesh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is in Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 2, that we have the largest quotation of Psalm chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, this is what the author says. Hebrews 2, verse 6, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who was the author of Hebrews referring to? And David ultimately referring to. Look at the next verse. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present. We do not see everything in subjection to him, 
but we see him for who, who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It would be centuries later that God would care for his people. Broken image bearers like you and me, he would care for us by sending his son to visit us. And what happened at the cross is that Jesus took our broken image and by faith we take on his image. So that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that by faith we are being conformed into the very image and likeness of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel Jesus takes our broken image and by faith we are conformed to his. Listen to me. If you don't know Jesus this morning, whether you realize it or not, there is a void. There is an emptiness inside of you that will never be filled and never be satisfied until you are reconciled to this God and understand, is he mindful of you? He sent his son to visit you taking on the form of a bondservant so that you could live forever. A few months ago, someone sent me an article from a science magazine called The New Scientist. And it's in that article labeled and titled, What is the Meaning of Life? Written by Graham Lawton, who is a devout atheist and scientist. And what struck me about his article was how honest he was. Graham Lawton, scientist and atheist, answered this question concerning the meaning of life. He said, what is the meaning of life? The harsh answer, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring, impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. The earth and the sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. There is no meaning in life. My assistant read this this past week. He said, how depressing. I said, that's an understatement. Listen to me. If you write off God, understand what you're writing off and understand the life that you have resigned to live. If there is no God, then there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no inherent value, there is no glorious future. If you have written off God this morning, if you're here or watching online, just be sure you understand what you have written off. To think that we could walk out of here this morning with the good news that we could forever be changed by the glorious truth that there is a God, that there is a God who has created all things to think that we could wake up tomorrow morning, maybe for the first time, knowing with confidence that this world was not some random explosion and that life is not meaningless, to think that we could wake up tomorrow morning understanding that we have purpose and value because I have been created in the image of God, to think that we could wake up knowing that my life has infinite purpose and a glorious future. It seems too good to be true. But then we realize in Jesus, 
It's true for us. This is the good news of the gospel and the foundational truths of creation to know this and to be set free and to be changed forever. Imagine the audacity to leave here this morning and say, God, no thanks. Imagine the audacity of leaving here this morning. Say, God, I'll choose to live life on my own. Sounds absurd, right? Only the fool would say that.